The weather's been weird this year, and every indication is that it will continue to be weird in the future. How can we adapt? Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of August the 22nd, 2013. We decided we're going to devote this podcast to a reprise of a presentation we just gave to Tallapoosa County Master Gardeners dealing with climate change and the southern garden so we thought you would be interested in it uh, we will tell you that one this podcast is going to run a little long sorry about that two we have the most beautiful view as we're recording it because we're at the lake uh, right now and we're looking out over lake martin sitting on our screen porch so nanny 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 <laughs> we enjoy it, and unfortunately, this is our last day at the lake for a while. But uh, And, you know, we talked about w weird weather, but today is absolutely beautiful. So no complaints here. Absolutely. So um, the presentation is about climate change and your garden, specifically how we as gardeners or farmers can adapt to the uncertainty of the weather. Oh, and I should uh, tell you, the slides are on our show notes page. So if you want to get full benefit of this, go on to Longleaf Breeze and ask for podcast number 199, Climate Change in Your Garden, and you will see the link to the slide so you can follow along with us. Just a couple of disclaimers at the outset. Right. We're not taking a position in this particular podcast anyway on the cause of climate change this is not we're not here to argue politically or you know is it man-made or any of that that's for a whole other discussion but we are here to talk about you know the fact that yes we acknowledge you have an opinion we have an opinion but we want to share our experiences what what have we seen and what what are our plans for adapting to what we've seen and most of our experience is with edible plants, plants that we are growing for food uh, rather than ornamentals. But most of what we say is probably going to relate just to ornamentals just the way it relates to uh, vegetables and yeah, fruit. It, it applies to all plants, all growing things. Using the term climate change and global weirding rather than global warming, and the reason we do that is that this is about more than just a general warming. It's, it's more <sighs> unpredictable patterns, global weirding, um, things happening that no one expected to happen this year or For next. example, uh, the spring weather. You know, we've talked about the fact that people got their plants, they had to plant later this year than they would like to have done because it was an unusually cool spring. And it was wet, and then it continued to be a wet summer. That was weird. That was unusual, not necessarily warmer. But that having been said, warming is a big part of it, so let's deal with that. Now, let's start with that, because, you know, one thing that's interesting is if you go to, is it ArborDay.com, you yes. can see a map of the plant hardiness zones. And actually, between 1990 and 2006, they've had to redo that map because of the fact that what used to be zone 
7 is now zone 8. And, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, there was a day when we at our farm were sort of on the border between zones 7 and 8. And now we're squarely in the middle of zone 8. And we are typical of a lot of other people. You know, people who used to be in zone 7, now zone 8. People who used to be in zone 9, now zone 10, and so forth. Uh, everything is just shifting a little bit northward. And, you know, it's it's interesting. There are some effects on the natural timing in nature. For example, uh, some studies done by David Wolf of Cornell uh, recorded changes in bloom time between, you know, apples and um, grapes and other plants that were um, lilacs, I think was another one. And they were blooming between six to eight days earlier. And they we'll did. have a reference to his study at the very end of this presentation. Right, and, and, and the study was done comparing temperatures in the, in the 1960s with the 2000s, uh, 2006 or something like that. The point is that it shows natural si- uh, systems are getting out of sync, and that has ramifications. For example, um, plants and their pollinators. If a plant blooms earlier then even if it's only six days, you think, what, what does that matter? But if the pollinator is looking to pollinate that plant later in the year and it's already past the stage of, you know, the, of optimum pollination, that's a problem. And another one, and especially that we see as organic gardeners, are pests and their predators. Uh, in a natural system with the balance that God intended, you had, yes, you have pests that get into your plants, but also there are predators who are designed to be attracted to and come get that pest. Um, Now, when things are out of sync, the pest can get ahead of the situation. In addition, in the wintertime, sometimes we don't really get the cooling we need. Uh, One of the remarks that we tend to hear, and you probably do as well, is we just didn't get a winter. That was certainly true here in the southeast. And you see here a picture of Amanda uh, walking in her shorts and halter top. That was taken in November, I think. Um, And that's not that unusual for us to be in shorts and halter top in central Alabama in November. Another impact of it is chilling hours for fruit trees. We planned our orchard about four and a half years ago. And I put in several varieties of apple that needed around, you know, between 9 and 1,100 chilling hours because that was sort of what we were getting in central Alabama according to the data available then. Well, I, th- I guess we've had one winter since then when we got as many as 1,000 chilling hours. Most winters we've gotten less. So I'm probably looking at pulling half of my apples and two or three pears and replacing them with varieties that have that are able to deal with fewer chilling hours. And that's just, you know, one example of how people are having to deal with this. And the fact that those trees were designed originally were grown in this area and were fine and now it's not cool enough. It's not, you know, we're not getting enough chilling hours. So, I mean, I think that's what's remarkable about all this. It's not that we're planting something we shouldn't be planting in Alabama. And, and of course, there are other, you know, direct effects. Um, Heat stress on even heat-loving veg, even vegetables that, you know, are okay with uh, it getting up to the 90s. But when it gets, either when you have drought or too much heat, 
uh, that can be. Now, it wasn't a problem this past summer because, as we said, it was a little bit cooler and definitely wetter than usual. You also get increased pests. And one of the reasons is that um, it didn't get cold enough in the winter to kill them off. And you get um, more of their generations that, you know, instead of maybe two generations of stink bugs, you might get three. Or, you know, I'm just throwing that out. You, you're, there's more time with the warmer weather for them to and of course, with each generation, you it's exponential growth. Um, increased disease pressure, again, insufficient cooling and, and frost in the wintertime to kill off diseases that are soil, soil born. You also, weeds, weeds don't seem to mind the weird weather and the w- warm weather. And actually, uh, with the extra carbon dioxide that we have in the, um, in the atmosphere, it's actually helping Weeds such as, well, I consider it a weed, poison ivy, noxious plants, kudzu, um, they thrive on the extra carbon dioxide. And poison ivy, um, and I've forgotten what the substance is that, uh, that uridol or something, I, I, I can't remember the name Sounds of it. right. But there is a, a substance that's the, what makes you itch. That actually becomes more toxic um, with in the presence in the, of larger percentages of carbon that's dioxide. That's right, yes. And I, I, neither of us really understands why this same effect doesn't flow through to tomatoes and beans and peas and corn, but apparently it does not. So um, There are other changes that we see in the natural system, not necessarily our cultivated areas. For example, we love the American beech trees we have growing here on Longleaf Breeze. And we are told, our friend Larry Davenport in Birmingham has said that the American beech may migrate so far north that although it's called an American beech, it may no, may no longer be native to the United States of America. The, at least the contiguous lower 48, that's right. Um, much more comfortable in Canada. Yeah. Uh, we have... Uh, all this evidence about migrating birds, that um, it affects them because of the fact that they, when they're st- on their stopovers during their migration, they need flowering and fruiting plants for sustenance. And, um, you know, even if you're not a nature lover and you don't care about that, if you're a grower, you should. Because hummingbirds, for example, it's amazing the distances that those tiny little birds migrate but they depend on a food source along the way. So again, things being out of sync, that's a problem. When they land on, in that place that they're used to landing, that plant needs to be flowering. It's all, if it's already flowered and gone, that's a problem. There are changes in rain patterns like longer droughts, uh, more severe droughts, and when we get rain events, they're going to tend to be more extreme. Fewer soft, gentle rains and more deluges. So, you know, that's something that uh, is particularly challenging for us in a place that, that's hilly and sandy the way Longleaf Breeze is. It means whenever we do any disturbing of our soil for any reason, we have to be attentive to erosion. Mm-hmm. And that's even more the case now in the face of these uh, deluges that we are going to be ex- expecting. And anyone who's ever planted tiny little seeds out in your bed 
um, you don't really want a deluge to come along right after you planted those to wash them down the hill or wash them away or float off somewhere. Oh, yeah. You want We'd a gentle rain. We'd all rather have a soft, gentle, mm-hmm. soaking rain, but you don't always get that. Not getting as many of those. Now, this summer, we've had, here in Alabama at least, and from what we read, a, a, a good part of the United States has experienced an unusually cool, unusually wet summer. And I guess the cool part, particularly here in the South, I, was I don't hear say, about cool temperatures. Well, we know that in, in the, the Midwest and in the Northeast, yeah, they, they have, have had unusually hot temperatures. Yeah. Again, global weirding. But back to our situation, here's a, a picture of my poor tomato plants. I like to show off my success stories, but I'm, going, I'm showing you a failure here. Um, and I chalk it up to the wet weather. And I've talked to many gardeners who've had similar results. We're going to be seeing just more unusual events of heat and cold, warm spells in the winter um, that will encourage budding and blossom growth, followed by a killing frost that then clobbers the plant. Um, And our particular example of that is our Warren pear. This year, for the first year, it just budded and bloomed in a riotous way. And then we had a killing frost. And we didn't, as a result, we didn't get a single pair from all of those blossoms, not a one. I mean, the tree's alive, but we didn't get any production Yeah, fortunately, the tree survived. So um, we are hoping for another day with our Warren. So that's sort of where the problem lies and what we see as the challenge So how do we adapt to that? Right. Well, we started out, and and you in particular thought of an idea of um, what I call a four seasons garden, but you could also, you you had the idea of three summers summers because you could actually maybe plant three different um, sets of vegetables because if you had the, the law, the spring was warm and, you know, went into summer. Well, that was, we had such an atypical pattern this year with the late spring, really the late warming, that we sort of chunked that idea and um, went with the idea that, you know, well, maybe we need to look at climate change as a larger issue. Um, and so uh, the wet summer, of course, you've seen the, some of the examples of that about the tomatoes and and um I also had vole problems to start out with, which is a whole other yeah, that's a <laughs> issue that put me behind on things. But and actually did not plant as much because of that. But again, back to the global weirding idea: warmer temperatures are just one component. The wet weather, you know. The other thing we didn't really talk about was how my garlic, I think, suffered from all that water because yeah, um, the best results on harvesting garlic is to let it dry out for a week before planting. We never got a chance. We never to had let a, it dry a, out. a chance. So it, I got some good garlic, but a lot of it I think is basically it rotted too early. Um, I can't I won't be able to use it because it just getting it dry. And you know what? Even when I took when I harvested and planted it, the air remained so moist. I could I couldn't find a place dry enough to dry that garlic. So, you know, So we're still committed to extending the season, to spreading it out and planting earlier and also planting and harvesting later. That's an important part of our strategy. But we realize we're really going to need to to employ some other tools as well, and we're going to take a moment and talk about those. And many of these tools are simply good gardening practices. And so those of you who are 
experienced gardeners may already be doing this, but from the research that we did to, to get this presentation together, we found that so many of these practices are more important than ever. And um, for example, adding organic matter and mulch. And we have a picture here of the strawberries that I planted last fall, and I hope to plant some more pretty much just like those this coming fall. Reasonably well mulched. Mm -hmm. We had a good year for strawberries. They bore for about six, seven weeks. They did, a long time uh, um, before the run. squirrels got them too much. But, but the nice thing about, or the reason you do this is, yes, you want to hold the moisture better so that when, if it is a weird, if the weirdness is it's a drought season, you want to hold in all the moisture you possibly can. Um, and also um, to prevent splatter up on the, when you have one of those crazy rains, Sp again, splash off of, it's bad for the disease, it can spread disease to the plant, and also just makes your fruit dirty and harder to harvest, really. And if we do get a sudden, severe weather event, like a big killing frost or whatever, that mulch really does protect the roots from big swings in temperature. Yeah, and actually, even like with root vegetables, might be good to just put some extra mulch on there if you hear it's going to be going down to a hard freeze. Planting earlier and later, I guess, are the other things. Uh, that's, you know, sort of the season extension idea. But it is smart to go ahead and use the full season. It's season extension. And also, the earlier you plant in the spring, uh, it helps you get ahead of the pests a little bit, the pest cycles. The conventional wisdom on planting shade trees is to plant them right over your house so they shield your house from the midday sun. Our approach is a little different. We are careful to keep trees away from our buildings. And the reason is because we're setting up to harvest rainwater. So our solution to the cooling issue is to use a metal roof that is completely separated from our living space. And it's a light-colored metal roof. And it's sort of like living under the mother of all shade trees. We have this huge shade that just keeps us protected from the midday sun. And you might wonder, well, what does that have to do with gardening? It's actually, this is about your entire lifestyle really being um, helpful to do as much as you can to prevent increased climate change, increase, increased um, emi carbon emissions. So the less energy you have to use to keep your house cool, the less you're contributing to further problems with this. Um, and of course, trees in general are good to plant. They sequester carbon and um, they, of course, help stabilize your environment in many cases if you have erosion problems. But the fact that they do sequester carbon when there's too much of it already in the atmosphere is um, important. We have a picture here of us, uh, actually I'm in the picture, you're taking the picture, but we together plant longleaf pines, uh, about, about 350 of them per year. To on our farm. So we think that's a good way that um, anybody can contribute. We recommend long leaves in this area of the country, and they're pretty easy to plant when they're in the seedling stage. Every indication we have is that long leaves will continue to thrive even if uh, climate change brings hotter, drier summers. They're uh, uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. So that's why we're so aggressive about planting longleaf pines. Plus, we live at Longleaf Breeze, so well, it makes sense for us. And they love it there. They love it. <laughs> now, continuing the good gardening practices, uh, we we 
certainly believe in composting because we have, therefore, an organic, natural um, means of fertilizing our plantings. So kitchen and yard waste, uh, if it's pesticide and herbicide-free, definitely compost as much of that as you can. In preparation for these long, hot, dry summers we've talked about, we're big believers in using drip irrigation as your way of watering your crops. You're going to have to use supplemental water from time to time. That's just um, built into the equation. And for us, drip irrigation is the gold standard, particularly if you can be drawing from surface water like a lake or a pond or a stream rather than city water or a deep water well. Right now we're drawing from a well, but we have plans to uh, morph our drip irrigation so that we're drawing from our pond instead. And again, one of the reasons water conservation, and if we do have sporadic drought periods, it's going to be even more essential than it is now. Plus, with an electric pump for your well, that's using more energy. So it's keeping the carbon footprint to a minimum. And the reason we say you're using more energy when you pump from a well is that our well is 228 feet down, the pond is more like 40 or 45 feet down. So that really, uh, that's a huge difference in the head and therefore the energy needed to pump it up. Right. Uh, You need to be extra vigilant uh, for weeds and pests. Nobody wants weeds in their garden anyway. You don't want pests. But um, letting them get ahead of you um, when you have strange weather is even worse because the pests, you know, especially if you don't want to use pesticides and we don't, um, you want to use natural means as much as you can to control those. We do need to be prepared for unexpected frost because global warming, as we have said repeatedly, does not mean always warmer. Sometimes it just means different extremes and sometimes, sometimes that can take the effect of an unexpected frost or hard freeze. We have frost blanket, and we are prepared to use it, but honestly have not used we it. We have much. not had to because the last couple of winters have been mild. But you know, you never know, so we're, we are prepared. Um, we may be planting some citrus trees in the future. They're a little bit less hardy with it. Um, mulch is good. I know when you have a, a one-year or younger fig tree, you need to put plenty of mulch on that. Um, like I said earlier, root vegetables, if you're going to have a hard freeze, throw extra mulch on that. And avoid heavily pruning your trees all the way to the ground. I was told, I learned in the Master Gardener program, that uh, with my lantana, I do want it to come back. Yes, it is um, an aggressive little plant, <laughs> big plant, but it attracts hummingbirds and, and pollinators, and, and I like it. Um, but so if you, if you leave a little bit, you know, six or eight inches of, of stem there, even, even if you do have a hard freeze, the plant can still survive and come back the next year. And in my world of fruits, I am careful not to prune after about the middle of August. And the reason is that I don't want to stimulate new growth into a freeze. So I I stop pruning about the middle of August for that reason. Because you never know, like we're talking about the weirding, when that freeze is going to be exactly, when that first frost will be. That's right. Um, We believe in shifting to open pollinated and saving seeds, uh, that is, plants that are open pollinated, um, because that way you can actually uh, propagate that same exact cultivar the next season if you you have a hybrid, you know, that won't work so well. Um, But um, this picture shows rattlesnake beans in my hand taken from a plant that um, I 
had grown earlier. The advantage of this is that if you are diligent and consistent in saving your own seed and using it year after year after year, over time, you develop your own strain of that crop that's adapted to your specific conditions, your temperature, your soil nutrients, your pest situation, your diseases. And as a result, you will have a hardier plant on average going forward. We, we believe in growing and eating food crops that work for us. Yes, it may mean I don't have the variety that I'd like to have all the time, but you know, unless I'm willing to spray pesticides on something, which I'm not, then our squash bug example is a great one. We've had, I've planted zucchini a couple of years, been very frustrated by the squash bugs. That particular type of squash, that family that zucchini is a member of, um, is does not have a lot of natural built-in abil- uh, immunity. Well, and, and really it's vine borers that, that have the, that there's a difference. Squash bugs, honestly, they seem to get on everything, on all the cucurbits that I've planted. But the zucchini, the vine borers were just attacking them. And um, uh, people who are willing to use seven dust may not have that problem. I'm not. So what do you do? I've just gone to planting the 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 varieties, the plant families of squash that actually do have a little built-in resistance to vine borer. We are big fans of Barbara Kingsolver and her in her book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, which we highly recommend reading. Um, she talks about eating whatever's lovely and in season. So I credit her with that quote. And it's been a watchword or a, a, a a maxim really for us since we've moved to Longleaf Breeze because it may mean that I would like some asparagus right now in August, but I'm going to have to wait till spring. That's right. No asparagus now. And I'm eating the peppers that are growing so beautifully still and the okra that's still going strong. And, and uh, well, the cucumbers did cucumbers for a while. Cucumbers are sort of quit by now, but we did have a great run of yeah, cucumbers yeah. this year. And, uh, in my world, we are just about to enjoy a bumper crop of muscadine, so we're looking forward to that. Here's an okra blossom that um, you can see, and okra's doing great this year. We didn't plant that much of it, but I didn't what because we did of, plant's doing well. That's right, because of the voles, uh, and I was so discouraged by little seedlings that I had, you know, coming up and then disappearing the next day, that I had put out about six okra plants that I bought from the store, just transplants. They have done great. They're huge now. They're producing like crazy. So we're getting a lot of okra from six plants. We're big believers in cover crops. Um, synthetic fertilizers, the kind you you know you just buy at the big box store, whatever. They add to the carbon footprint because in, typically they in, involve the use of fossil fuel to manufacture the fertilizer. And to transport it all over the country, too. But if you instead plant legumes as cover crops and plant cover crops that create biomass, you're actually going to reduce the carbon footprint while enriching the soil. And the soil enrichment is so much more permanent because what you're doing is adding organic matter to the soil. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's an added benefit controlling weeds, which we've already talked about the benefit of, of doing that. And here's a natural way, and it really does work. Take my word for it. Here are my two favorites. One of them is sun hemp. That's a summer cover crop that you plant. I actually planted some fairly early this year, um, before June. I think it was probably May in a couple of beds that lay idle 
And if you're an, a, an authority on sun hemp and you look at this and you say, by these people have just gone crazy with the height the of picture, their sun hemp. Right. We've learned. We know better now, but uh, we love this picture because it shows just how large the sun hemp can get. How tall? That's about, uh, what, 14 feet or so. And then the hedge right in front of where I'm standing in the picture, you have trimmed. It already cut. So. Cut. So, And if you keep it cut, but um, at least for now, it will not set seed and multiply and be invasive. But we are watching that closely right. because as those temperatures migrate northward, we may reach the point where sun hemp becomes invasive. And if it does, then we'll just have to stop using it. But right now it's working great. And um, that's a good summer one. Okay. A couple of options or three that we'll mention right here for a winter cover crop. Um, sweet lupin, crimson clover, and black oats. And we have a picture of that. This, this is, is actually... This and black Yeah, oats, we, don't have a picture the, clover we don't have a picture of the crimson clover, but most people know what that looks like anyway. Um, but the lupin is actually my favorite for a vegetable garden. The broader leaves you see in the picture here yeah. are the lupin and the... What looks like grass is the black oats. And we should probably mention the black oats actually don't necessarily add any That's nitrogen. Correct. They, they are do, not they are not legumes. But but the uh, they added biomass and that's one reason we use them and also we're really good on weed control. But the lupin adds uh, fixes nitrogen in the soil and is easy to harvest or to terminate enough so that when I'm ready to plant my vegetable garden at the end of that season and terminate that cover crop, it's much easier to terminate than some of the others. And the same thing cannot necessarily be said for black oats. Black yeah. oats ha are pretty tenacious, so you sort of have to be careful where and when you use black oats. I would use them in a large field, especially if you, if you had ac uh, access to some crimping equipment or something uh, to terminate it that way. Mm -hmm. um, or mowing. But yeah, I was you out. Just, you could bush hog them if you needed But to. remember how many times you clipped that stuff back and it still wanted to keep going. Oh, it pops so. <laughs> back up. Absolutely. Yeah. We're big believers in diversity. Embrace diversity in all things because the more different ways you have to sustain yourself, the less dependent you are on any one of them and the less damaged you are if one of them fails. Which it could with weirding, weird weather. Yes. We've seen that happen so many different ways and we, are, we will always be seeking diversity. So, you know, here in the middle of the, uh, the as the, the summer wanes and we approach fall, we are looking toward our sweet potatoes. They are doing great. Here's a... Uh, this is the first year we've really trellised sweet potatoes, and so far they're loving it. Yes, they, they've uh, pretty much pushed everybody else out of the way. Over to the side, there's some poor old eggplant. I'll, I probably won't do that again, by the way, is plant eggplant right next to the sweet yeah, potatoes. Yeah, next time we do this with sweet potatoes, we'll just give them their own bed and let them be the thugs they are. Um, they just take it over. I planted some uh, different plants in July. Here's a tomato plant. Um, this is one that you planted in on July the 19th, and it's doing wonderfully. This was a just a neglected little seedling that you had started back in March, I think. And it was um, just left over, basically. Uh, but once we put it in the ground, it just couldn't be happier. And we're expecting good fruit on it. This, These are some beans that you planted. Squash. Um, Oh, squash, I'm sorry. Uh, and that was on the uh, July, July 30, the 31st. Right, 31st. And uh, we'll be getting good growth out of them. As a matter of fact, I looked at those just yesterday, and they probably added four or five inches since uh, this photo was taken. 
Our fall veg will be going into the ground next week. That's when we will be starting things like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and kale and cabbage and um, so uh, and uh, collards, of course. Collards are really the 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 heart of our fall veg. This is some uh, Brussels sprouts that were growing under row cover. We used row cover that year because we had a big problem with Carolina grasshoppers. And what we've learned is the grasshoppers are a big problem in dry years because there is a fungus that, con that helps to control them that needs moisture. Well, for obvious reasons, with all of the rain we've had, there's no problem with grasshoppers this year. I wouldn't year. say that. I have seen a few well, We have seen a few, but not nearly to the extent that we had the year we had to employ the row cover. So I fully expect we will be going into the ground without row cover uh, next week. But, you know, we'll, we'll see them develop. Uh, in October, we will be ready to plant strawberries, and our strawberries are designed to overwinter, and they overwinter just fine. There's a myth out there that strawberries will get killed by a frost or freeze. No, as long as they're not blooming, they're fine. Um, we have not yet encountered a freeze event that knocked our strawberries back uh, unless they were blooming. So uh, now it, it could be that if the temperature were going down to 12 degrees that we would need to take precautions but the normal sort of freezing temperatures we get in central Alabama just are not a problem. And if you did have a problem with a, a, a hard freeze after they started blooming, that's when I would bring in the frost blanket for sure. Yeah, and, and it's fairly easy to do that. doesn't have to be supported particularly. It can be just uh, lying loose on the bed, and it will even just lying loose on the bed, it will um, reflect back enough to heat so that uh, you actually raise the effective temperature by five or six degrees, which is typically enough. And I had good results with planting onion sets in October. Even though around here the conventional wisdom is wait till January, they actually had a chance to put on more root growth, planting them earlier. And this year I had the best onions I've ever had, nice big bulbs. Do plant the um, the right type of onion for your region. We here in central Alabama, our best our optimum, um, it's a sh it's called a short day variety. So those are typically Granex, Vidalia, that kind of thing. We had great production <clears throat> from our garlic this year. We've already told you that we had so much moisture at the end of the of the garlic's tenure, <clears throat> uh, specifically as we were getting ready to harvest, that we really were not able to to get the the preservation of the garlic <clears throat> that we needed, but the production was great. We're looking forward to some time in December and January when we can rest and harvest things. Then we're looking at spring peas in February. And here are some spring peas um, on the trellis. This was not taken in February. This was taken a good bit this is later after they had had a chance to grow. After they had a chance to grow some, that's right. And then, of course, we look at March and April when we can in harvest and enjoy that Yay. asparagus. Uh, <clears> so. <throat> And then there's a picture of the asparagus growing at the tail end of Veg Hill, um, just happy as it can be now. Clearly in ferns right now, no, no, yeah, sprouts. And <laughs> I guess you know around October that's when I'll bush hog it and remulch it 
And then we'll just let it sit there over the winter, and come March and April, we'll start seeing those spears poking up again. That's what we hope. So maybe we're ending up with that Four Seasons Garden we talked about. Um, We certainly keep ours going the whole time. You hear people say, well, I folded up my tent, my garden shut down. Ours is never shut down. It's always growing something. Here are some references, as we promised you, uh, some information about David Wolf's work, some other information that we thought you might find helpful. And we appreciate your patience to stay with us today as we have explored this vexing, fascinating world of how we gardeners can can adapt to climate change. Have a good day. Take care. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com.